0: You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the house and our events on our website. Even though Rachel Kushner has only published three novels, she's been called, quote, one of America's greatest living authors. She's been compared to Dostoevsky and Dickens, and praised by authors such as Margaret Atwood, Karl-Ove Knausgaard, Stephen King, and George Saunders. My name is uh, Lynn Rotem, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. And tonight, I am extremely pleased to welcome Rachel Kushner for the first time to the House of Literature. Kushner's last novel, Flamethrowers, set in New York's art world, Uh, struck a literary nerve when it was published in 2014. With her new novel, The Mars Room, uh, Kushner has once again captured readers and critics worldwide. And I suspect Norwegian critics will follow in the coming days. Uh, Marshalungen, as it is called in Norwegian, was published just a few days ago, beautifully translated by Kira Hagen Bakke. The novel has also been nominated for several prestigious international awards, among them the shortlist for the International Book Award. In Mars Room, Kushner portrays white lower-class life in a US prison. But this is so much more than a novel about the prison system. It is a story about contemporary America, about poverty, privileges, and power but perhaps, most of all, about trust or mistrust in humanity itself, both inside and outside institution life. In Kushner's writing, it is both as much about observing as it is about telling. And every moment is a little story in itself, forcing us, the readers, to look at the ordinariness underlying extraordinary crimes. Tonight, Kushner will give you some glimpses into this unique universe and she will do so in conversation with uh, one of her enthusiastic readers and one of our favorite interviewers here at the House of Literature, writer and psychiatrist Finn Skårdru. Please give them both a warm welcome. (laughs)
1: Welcome, Rachel Kushner. I have all your books, actually.
2: A completist. Uh, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for coming.
1: Yes, and again, welcome to Norway. She said a lot of beautiful things about your authorship. How is that?
2: Uh, well, I mean, it was very nice, very complimentary. Uh, I was just reminded, not that I am accustomed to standing there listening to somebody praise me, but it reminded me that I never know how to hold my face when Mm. I'm listening to someone talk like that. Like, Mm. should I look down? Should I look like I'm used to this? Should I look embarrassed? Should I look pleased? Mm. I don't, it's abstract, and probably it should remain abstract. Um, You know, you don't, you can't write, for praise, or even at least in my case, for other people, you do it to be um, in conversation with yourself and ask questions that don't have easy answers. Like the experience of writing a book. So far, um, I know only three novels. I was like, "That's a lot," uh, <laughs> but each book has taken me five years to write and. So over the course of that time, I'm trying to ruminate in depth um, and in the case of this book on something that I think, as Lynn said, has to do with where we are right now as a society and involves a kind of moral complexity to it. So that's a very uh, solitary work and you're not thinking about... um, getting to go to Scandinavia or you know, any of the other kind of more social rewards that come with being a writer. So the idea is not to get too attached to the praise and just keep no. your head down. Yeah,
1: but I think you did well with the pose. So you had with the yeah. face? Yeah, OK, exactly. I tried.
2: Mm. <laughs> Thank you. Should you start? A psycho, uh, he's a psychiatrist. Yes,
1: I am. <laughs> mm. I'm a doctor, so take it easy. This will be OK. This is yeah. the only
2: way they could get me into therapy, actually. Yeah.
1: Mm. <laughs> With the audience, yes. Uh, let's start, Rachel, with The Marsh Room. We also say something about the other books, but um, this is your first contemporary novel. The very first one, Tell yeah. From Cuba, was about the revolutionary situation in Cuba in the 1950s. In Travelers*, you are in the uh, 1970s in the artist milieu in New York and radical Italy. Yeah. Contemporary America, say something about it. What drove you to this topic?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, <clears throat> a lot of emphasis is placed on the contemporary novel among writers. Um, you know, you hear this expression, especially in the newspaper, of like holding a mirror up to your times and writing about your own time. And uh, it's actually pretty hard to do. Um, at least in, in, um, in my experience... What's, what's challenging about it, and that challenge is good, it's an exciting challenge, is that unlike writing about the 1970s in New York, or the role that the Americans played in the Cuban Revolution, I mean by antagonizing Fidel and Raul Castro, um, unlike with those subjects, you don't have hindsight in order to write. I truly believe that we also live in history. This is a historical moment. We are as shaped by historical forces as people in the 70s, for instance, were shaped by uh, the waning and then total death of the manufacturing industry in the United States and a shift to finance capital, which changed everyone's lives basically for the worse. Um, We are also a product of historical forces, but it's harder to see them. You could feel them in your daily life, and they're symptomatic. We all live with the symptoms of... Where we have arrived at, but it's harder to get a read on the shape and pattern of the cultural meaning of this time. You know, the political meaning of it, the social meaning of it. Um, and I, I guess, I believe that to write a contemporary novel, you need to have a, an idea about what marks or shapes your own historical era of the contemporary. I live in California. Um, I lived in New York City for a long time, but I'm from California, from San Francisco. And I live in Los Angeles. And um, I grew up with people that entered the criminal justice system at a very young age. So I was exposed to it early. Uh, and my friend, uh, excuse me, my parents also had friends who'd been in prison. So it's not something that felt abstract or distant from me. And living in Los Angeles, um, I am walking distance from our enormous criminal court building, Clara Shortridge Fultz. And from there, you can see sheriff's buses that shuttle back and forth from the jail complex, which is the biggest in the world in LA, that complex, to the courts. So to me, contemporary reality necessarily involves this system that is um, absorbing a huge number of people who are subjected to it in a way that is so life involving that to me to write a contemporary novel about California right now must include um, the question of how society is organized and that question includes who's being subjected to the courts and the jails and the prisons.
1: And many of them, them are. I mean, I've been preparing for this and looked at some numbers. I mean, they're terrifying. That United States have 25 percent of all prisoners in the world. Yeah, it's about 17 million under kind of criminal surveillance system. More than Stalin had in Gulag. 2.2 million in prison, lot of them women, et cetera. I mean, how did you end up there? And much of this is a private system. I mean, uh, they're running prisons like Walmart and.
2: Uh, Actually, I mean, most people in the United States are in public prison. Mm-hmm. And the engine, and the, I mean, that's, we could get into that, but it's kind of straying a little bit from the book. But the, the, the dynamic engine of incarceration is not private profit, and it's not private prisons. Private prisons, there are people here who will know the exact number, but private prisons comprise, I believe, about 7% of all incarcerated people. When it comes to the question of detaining people who don't have citizenship, that is a growing market for the private prison industry, but like New York State does not have private prisons. Am I right about that? Does somebody here know? uh, California has almost no private prisons. It is a it's a it's a state function in California. The state of California spent for 2019 12.5 billion dollars on prison. Um, it's it, they don't make money off of it. It's very expensive for them. It costs a lot of money for each person. It's complicated to explain what the impulse to build and expand the prison system is if it's not profit. People have theories about it. I wrote a very long article for the New York Times about this recently. It took me two years to write, and so I don't, like, to summarize the argument before this (laughs) audience is slightly difficult, and it has to do with the difference between what we call private profit Mm. and what functions as what we call state revenue, and how states need to justify themselves before their populations and get bond measures passed. And they keep building prisons. Maybe I could summarize just by saying, most of the cost of prison, like, for instance, in California, which I think is, um, it's not totally indicative of the United States, but it's a useful place to see patterns, partly because of the size of it. I um, mean, also, you know, we're the, we're, the, we're the leader for better and worse. We have the largest women's prison in the world. We undertook the largest prison building project that had ever been undertaken. Um, 75% of the budget, actually 73, I'm rounding up, 75% of the budget that goes towards prisons, that $12.5 billion, goes to the salaries of corrections officers. Those are people... Those are people from relatively modest educational backgrounds um, who need jobs, who deserve to have job security, but why do they have to work in a prison and cage other people in order to get those jobs? uh, Corrections is always hiring in California. If you want to get a different kind of state job with benefits, it's a lot harder to get, especially if you only have a high school education. So it's like... um, You know, a state funded um, employment project, except Mm. it's prison. In
1: this book, we follow particularly the main character, Romy. Yeah. She has got a name from the German actress, French actress, Romy Schneider. Right. You hint that her mother had a fling with Hitler. Yeah. (laughs) Who is Romy?
2: That Romy's mother did. Yeah. Yeah, I read that somewhere, but then it really just precipitated the joke yeah. that, who didn't?
1: Yeah, <laughs> But who is, um, could you describe Romy for us in this novel?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, she doesn't, her mother is German. She says, my mother named me after a German film actress, and she never names the actress in the book. And to me, she's not the kind of woman who would care. She's not going to bother to see the, the movies that Romy Schneider was in. She feels disconnected from her mother yeah, and you um, also
1: says that the mother was disconnected from the daughter and said she was too sad to care for a daughter right. Hmm.
2: I mean, she you know her mother's European, and I was thinking back to Romy um, has grown up in San Francisco, and um, she is actually from my neighborhood. Um so she's somebody who's from a milieu that I know intimately. And, you know, now if somebody has a German parent in America, you think, that's so cool. It's so cosmopolitan. You know, do you speak German? And, oh, yes, I'm trilingual, et cetera. But (laughs) where I grew up in San Francisco, it's kind of sort of a bleak neighborhood. And when people had parents from foreign countries, it just made the parent that much less knowable. And they definitely did not speak um, their own first language to their child. So it was like, the European parents or the Filipino parents or the Chinese parents were these people that were barely legible to us and to their own children. So it's, it's a distancing mechanism, in a way, for mm. her to have a, a German mother.
1: And she works in the Mars Room. What, yeah. what is the Mars Room and what is she actually doing there? Uh,
2: the Mars Room is a strip club. Yeah. It's, um, it's based on a, a very specific place that is closed now, but that existed, and for anyone who ever worked there or stepped foot in there, it would be instantly recognizable in this book. But it's fun to put things in your books that have a lot of personal meaning, but are kind of lost to time. Like you couldn't Google this place and find out what the, it was called the Market Street Cinema, but you couldn't Google it and find out what the atmosphere it was like inside. Um, it's, It's one of those worlds that if it doesn't make it into literature, will be lost to the wash of time. And I guess, as she tells another woman who she meets in prison, her friend Sammy, or or maybe she tells the reader, um, sorry, it came out one year ago, so... (laughs)
1: Uh,
2: There's nothing special or remarkable about it unless you'd be impressed to know that it's um, the seediest and most squalid of all the clubs in San Francisco. It was sort of like a place out of a John Waters movie or something, and um an attractive place to work because they didn't have any rules there whatsoever.
1: And she ends up in prison. Yeah. She does. Double life sentence with no possibilities of parole and 6 years extra.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that um that sentence I gave her that sentence which happens to be um the sentence that uh, a friend of mine is serving right now who has other than that basically nothing in common with uh, nothing in common with Romi. Um, except that, so Romy goes to a prison called Stanville, which is based on a real prison um, in Chowchilla, California, called Central California Women's Facility, and um, so they have that in common. Um, but the the sentence, my friend Christy Phillips has that sentence, and like as far as I understand it, it's a sentence that a judge gives you if they want to ensure that you're never going to get out of prison, but there's no special circumstance to attach to your crime, which would allow them to give you a sentence of life without possibility of parole, LWOP, L-W-O-P. So by giving her two sentences, they make sure she'll never get out. And um, when I first met Christy, I, I didn't, had never met anybody who had more than one life sentence. And now, sadly, that's normal to me to see multiple. Christie's brother has five life sentences. Completely separate crimes, nothing to do with each other. Um, So there are a lot of people in the California system who have sentences like this. And at first it was shocking to me. Now I should be shocked that it's normal to me. But when you read the um, sentencing, the arguments that the judge makes um, when he hands down that sentence, he specifies not to be served concurrently so they're to be served consecutively. Technically what that means is you have 25 to life and then 25 to life, so you can go before a parole board. And if miraculously they decided you could go, which probably they won't, then you would be free to begin your second life sentence. So if you start to really think about it, it's almost like something you would encounter in a judeo-christian paradigm the idea that the person needs to live twice to pay back for the monumental harm that they have committed Um, but no one can live twice to pay it back and no person has ever come back to life that i have seen through someone else's suffering and life sacrifice so the idea of the life sentence is I think it's something I really wanted to think about when I was writing this book because I, I've known people who've gotten life sentences and um, it's so abstract. I mean, you can, you can serve like four years and then die in prison and you, you absolutely have fulfilled your commitment to the state to pay them back for the harm you've committed or you could live for 50 years and either way you've paid them back.
1: We follow... Romy and her female prisoners in these systems, in a way they are extremely dehumanizing. I mean, uh, it's a kind of terrible situation to be in. How can, what kind of research did you do in this?
2: Um, I didn't really do any what I would traditionally call research, mm. only because like, I associate research with when you want to learn something, mm in order to write about it in a book. And um, instead, I was and am still um, involved with people through volunteer work, through friendships, through family relationships, to incarcerated people. So I was, I guess, in a privileged position to hear about things that go on um, inside of Chowchilla Prison, that, which Stanville's based on and um, find out about, especially like the strategies that people use to get through their daily life. And I spend a lot of time, I've been to a lot of prisons um, in various capacities. So it's more like I had access in a natural and organic way, but obviously not through, I've never served time in prison, and I hope never to. No,
1: you shouldn't. Um,
2: no. But I don't call it research because no, I'm no. just as involved in it now mm. when I'm writing a completely different novel mm. as I was when I was writing The Mars Room. So it's, it must, it's a different category somehow. Like, I decided at a certain point that I wanted to live a life that included relationships with people... In California, that the state has made invisible, and my life does include those people, so I get a lot of information from them. Mm. Like there's a detail in the book, um, just for as an example, of um, the women on death row in Chowchilla. There are, I think, 25 women on death row there, and I have a very good friend who served a lot of time in solitary confinement. It's called administrative segregation, and it's right above death row. So she was able to form quite close friendships with people on death row. And I've been to Chowchilla many times, in the visiting room and also on the yards, but you don't really have a lot of access to people on death row. But she knew all about the inner workings, the emotional lives of the people on death row. And I said to her, what do they do down there? Because they're on the first floor, and administrative segregation is up above them, looking down. I said, "Do they work?" And my friend, her name's Teresa Martinez. She said, "Oh yeah, they have to work." And she said, "I said, what, it, what kind of work do they do?" She said, "They have six sewing machines. What do they sew? They sew sandbags for flood control." So then you see a Caltrans—that's our highway authority. The, um, you see a sandbag on the side of the road in California, and you think, it's been touched by the hands of the people hidden inside the prison of the prison, which the prison has a jail, which is solitary confinement, and then it has another prison inside of it, in a way, I'm making up that location, it's not like people in prison are calling it that, but um, death row is the inside of the inside of the inside of the prison, And I would never have known that, what people do there. And it allowed me to think about the distance and, in odd ways, the connection between my life and theirs, and how the state is run. Who's sewing sandbags? So when I got details like that, I felt it was important to put them in the book.
1: So in a way, you are trying to make visible what is hidden for us in many ways. I mean, these people are hidden inside these prisons, Uh, and it's very much about race and class.
2: Yes, but I mean, yes. Um, Although I would maybe qualify and say hidden from many people, but certainly not hidden from everyone. And in California, I mean, you can live a middle class existence where you don't ever really have to think about people who are subjected to courts and jails and prisons. Um, But if you are curious and interested in the mechanics of your world, or if you're not from the middle class, um, if you're from a more modest background, chances are um, that you can see that world. And um, in my experience, the more I know how to see of it, the more difficult it becomes to ever unsee it. And there are many traces of it that are in the free world um, around you. But but yeah, I mean, it's the, the prisons are sited in industrial farmland. You know, we grow like 40% of the food in California for the whole country. And deep in the middle of uh, those crops are these huge prisons, and they're very far from the homes of the people who are in them, who are largely from metropolitan Southern California, from urban areas.
1: So it's dramatic circumstances, but... This is a warm novel. I mean, it's uh, it's humor in it. Um, you are very empathic as a reader for your characters. I mean, uh, I was going so to
2: read a funny part if you want me to.
1: I would very much like you to read a funny part, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: Now I have to. I didn't have to wear these glasses, by the way, until um
1: last year. H. It's H. Yeah, <laughs> two
2: years ago, they shrunk all the goddamn books. They shrunk all the text, and also on pill bottles, and mm. it was it's global.
1: Yeah, same happened in Norway two years ago.
2: Sucks. It's not me, it's, it, it's the book. This is this guy, Kurt Kennedy, who's a character in my book, who uh, meets Romy at the Mars Room. He would not call it loaded, how he felt when he got on the plane. He was only starting to relax. He'd been on edge the whole time in Cancun. It was supposed to be a vacation, but minute by minute, he kept checking in with himself to find out if he was having fun, and he didn't know, and this made him anxious, so he took another Clonopin and lay down, or got up, or went to the bar, or walked around on the sand, but it burned his feet, and he had to face down the fact that he was not a beachy-type person and just wanted to get home and go to the Mars room and see Vanessa put her body in his lap. It was the only way in the world he knew to get peace. Every person deserves peace. He meant whether anyone deserves anything is beside the point. He needed certain things to feel okay. Vanessa was among those things. He needed dark and heavy curtains because he had a sleeping problem. He needed clonopin because he had a nerve problem. He needed Oxycontin because he had a pain problem. He needed liquor because he had a drinking problem. (laughs) Money because he had a living problem. And show him someone who doesn't need money. He needed this girl because he had a girl problem. Problem was maybe the wrong word. He had a focus. Her name was Vanessa. That was her stage name, but for him, it was her name name because it was the one he got to know her by. Vanessa filled in around all the hazier thoughts in his mind with something that was specific and real. When he was near her, he felt good. Every person deserves to feel good especially him, since he was himself. (laughs) He said just a few minutes.
1: It's beautiful. And could we travel into your scriptorium and say something about how we work? Um, We are very often eager to know, I mean, how is literature created? I mean, when do you get up in the morning and how does this work? I mean, you make multi-layered novels with beautiful sentences. How do they appear? I'm trying to
2: think of what to say. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, I got distracted when you were asking, like, how do you make sentences? And I was picturing an assembly line, because I met a guy this summer who worked at a Mercedes factory outside of Stuttgart, an American guy, and he said that everybody else on the assembly line was Greek or Turkish. This was before they automated a lot of this, like 15 years ago, and um, he said that uh, the assembly line was incredibly long, and throughout the day, at least one time a day, it would stop completely. And when the assembly line stopped, it meant that somebody had gotten their arm caught. Mm. Um, And he also said that um, people drank quite heavily, which I've known that to be the case because I I knew some people um, in my earlier life from riding motorcycles who had worked on assembly lines on the East Coast. And they all said the same thing, that factory workers drink and they start early in the morning. Um, I don't start drinking early in the morning. And I haven't lost an arm yet. Um, no, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the the life of a writer is pretty dull because there's nothing really to describe, which is, I think, why writers basically have nothing in common as people. Like, the idea of, people say to me, oh, you live in Los Angeles, like New York publishing world, writer people who hang out with other writers, you know, like, are there other writers out there? But why would I hang out with writers? Like, what Like, what do you have in common? I like to describe the world, you know? <laughs> um, so I don't know what to say about it. I mean, you know, you sit down and you work, and some days um, it goes well. Most days it doesn't. But... Um, When it does, it really does. Like the whole entire chapter of Kirk Kennedy was easy for me to write. I wrote it like in a sitting and it's very unchanged from what I wrote originally. And a book to me maybe is a collection of the very best days so that somehow it's a false representation of a person, a book. Ideally, it's false in the sense that it's smarter than the person is. That's what the writing is. It's a place that is evidence of a transformed state that you tricked yourself into after a lot of doldrums and good work habits.
1: And when you succeed in this, I mean, this is fiction. Do Hemingway
2: you... wrote Standing
1: Up. He wrote other standing people
2: up. do other things Standing Up. Yeah. I don't know, sorry, go on.
1: Yeah. <laughs> This is fiction. I mean, do you think fiction can do something that, for example, nonfiction not can do? I mean, uh, particular qualities of fiction and novels.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to slam the nonfiction writers, like because sometimes like they insult the fiction writers, and then I feel wounded about it. And there's mm. just no reason to press them down in order to lift myself up. But um, they, I th- they are, they are fundamentally different on some level. Um, for me, the draw to the novel over nonfiction is that when I, I write essays on occasion, and it's a very different kind of work, it uses different parts of the mind. And um, when I write nonfiction, although sometimes you can use language to find out what you think about something, you're still in your conscious mind, and it's a place where your superego, psychiatrist, is present and driving you so that you're not totally broken free from how you see yourself in the world and how you see yourself as a person who makes sentences and arguments. Fiction, on the other hand, doesn't really allow for like the rigid presence of the superego. You have an encounter with your own unconscious in fiction. Um, It's like a dark alley encounter with your own unconscious as I think of it. Which means that things come up in your fiction characters that you didn't really anticipate. And um, you can spread out along a spectrum that to me has more moral ambiguity. I'm not trying to justify or explain anything or rationalize anything. And I don't have to make judgments as a fiction writer. They won't be useful to me. Instead, I want to think about how people are in the world what it's like for them to be in the
1: world this is very interesting i can share a therapist trick with you in that say more about this that's the trick <laughs> <laughs> you say in a way something about the uh, moral ambiguity free or, i mean i think we can read it uh, you are very open for your persons i mean you're not judging them you're open and kennedy is a stalker i mean you're very open for him i mean Say something more about this. Yeah, the process sure. of it. Hmm.
2: Well, with all the characters I am, but with him in particular, I could give an anecdote. Um, so, th- this guy, Kurt Kennedy, meets Romy in the Mars Room. Her stage name is Vanessa, so that's who he was talking about in that short passage I read. And um, for most of the book, he he kind of he plays an important role for the reader and in the writing of the book because Romy makes reference to him as being the person who wrecked her life um wrecked her life because she ends up killing him uh, and going to prison um she doesn't say much about what happens on the night when she kills him or why or the circum you know the mechanics of it. Um, she only alludes to it and she speaks in the first person, and she tells the reader how he would um keeps showing up wherever she was and coming to her work. And she asked the managers to, a- to get rid of him, to 86 him, as it's called. And they said, he's a paying customer. Like, you're completely expendable and replaceable. Why would we kick him out? So she can't really find protections from this man. Um, and I wrote those, part, th- those parts easily because I know what that experience is like. I don't have to have lived something in order to describe it, but it's generally useful um, to use things that you have some expertise in. And I know what that feels like to have somebody giving you a lot of unwanted attention in a ceaseless way. And it can tear down your most private sense of sanctity, even if the person isn't around, they've sort of destroyed your ability to feel safe. Um, And I only was thinking about it from her perspective, and then suddenly I realized, oh, he's not doing this in order to wreck her life. In fact, it's not on his mind at all. He's desperate. He desperately believes that he needs to see this woman in order to feel okay. And then I decided that that's the extreme end of a spectrum called infatuation. And then I forced myself to define as simply as I can what infatuation is. Maybe for other people it's obvious. For me it wasn't. Infatuation is when you're thinking about someone else who may or may not be thinking about you. And he's thinking about her a lot all the time. So I, then I started to write from his perspective and it turned out that he was kind of funny and I liked him. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that people can be sort of like actually wonderfully creative in the way that they rationalize what they do. No one is like, I'm an irrational, insane motherfucker, you know, like people have an idea about how their life should be lived. And so in their mind, things are more rational than they may seem from the perspective of someone else. In a way... Excuse my language, there are children here.
1: In a way, I think of this as it might be healthy in a way. I mean, taking the perspectives of lots of people and lots of emotions and lots of state effects. I mean, trying to get inside different experiences. It must... In a way, be personally interesting, being inside the infatuation of Kennedy, being inside psychopathic killers. I mean, you got w- my point. Which I would
2: never think of that way. No, no. I mean, no,
1: uh, no, no, that's the point.
2: Yeah. yeah. Mm. I think maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems like narcissists to sit here and talk about myself. But um, I think it's not different than how I live. Like, people are mysterious, it's hard to know what they're thinking and feeling. Mm. And um, I do think that some people are more conscious and focused on their own experience of the world. Like, how am I feeling about this situation? Mm -hmm. How come those people's values are so different than mine? Like, measuring the distance between self and world. Um, That's maybe, if I could be so crude as to divide people into type, that's maybe one type. And another type is constant bewilderment but not necessarily in a negative way but what is that person thinking and what impression am I making on them and how far are apart are we and could I become closer to that person's perspective in order to relate to them or understand them I think that's always been my approach to life and um, fiction is fun in the sense that I get to use, like, the way people talk is sometimes an indication of what they're like. Not necessarily the content of what they say, but how they say it. So, like, the rhythms of speech are very uh, important to me. Yeah.
1: I think I hear that you're also saying something about curiosity, being curious on people and being curious on states. I mean, in a way, do you think, writing fiction in some way changes you personally. I mean, being so curious for the world.
2: Well, I guess what I meant to say was that I'm already curious. So I don't know if the writing deepens the curiosity or it's Mm. more like the life actually feeds Mm. into or is training ground for that kind of writing. I mean, the other character that I think you were referring to as a psychopath um, is a character in my book named Doc who was a cop for the LAPD and is serving a sentence of life without possibility of parole. And um, he's not based on a real person, but he was sparked, the idea of him, by somebody I met and really only spent five minutes with. I don't mean to sound creepy, like I'm going to write about somebody here tonight. Like, there was a woman at my reading. and, and but, um, but it was a very low... It was longer than that. It was probably 15 minutes, but it was a very dense and loaded 15 minutes because I was in his cell with him um, on a sensitive needs yard, and everybody else was on yard time, and he said, uh, I don't go on yard time, and I didn't have to ask why because, you know, his life would be in danger if he went on the yard since he's a police officer in a prison. And... All of his personal, his things were behind him on the walls. He had photographs of Harley Davidson motorcycles. Like, he doesn't own those motorcycles anymore. He's never going to leave prison. He's meant to die there. And um, he started telling me about people that he'd killed, um, which were murders that he wasn't convicted of. And I don't know if he was lying or telling me the truth, but I felt like he was really telling me something. And it was almost like his essence went into my skin. And um, it was enough that I thought about him and felt like I had this coating or layer there of a person who, despite the crimes that he committed, is a human being who's meant to die in this concrete box. And then as I started writing into him, he was also very funny. And his whole psyche was structured by these dirty jokes, which are actually the dirty jokes that structure my psyche. So finally, I had a place to put them. So, like, I'm Doc. I've had women at readings say to me, um, "Was it traumatic for you to write from his perspective?" Like, you know, no, it was fun, or I wouldn't have done it. It's not like somebody put a gun to my head and said, "You know, write about this guy."
1: No, I, I like curiosity. Yes. Some people who are artists, they say I've been drawing all my life. I mean, I have read something about you have more or less been writing most of your life, not all life, but... uh, (laughs)
2: You know, I actually, I always think it's pathetic when artists say that because, um, like, yeah. these kids are drawing right now. Like, mm. all children draw, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm. So then the artist is like, actually, I have been doodling since I was three. <laughs> and it's like, bitch, I doodled when I was three also. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you but, have writing.
2: But, uh, but it, no, but, I, you know, I'm just sorry. I didn't mean to make fun of the question. Um, so... When asked, have you been writing all your life, I always preface it with, you know, when the artists say, I've been drawing all my life. Mm. So maybe everybody was a writer when they were young. And some people got encouraged. Like, I think being given the confidence to write makes a big difference. Mm. And I might not have admitted that until more recently. But now I can see that I had parents who, like... You know, my mother is a a scientist who thinks, like, any woman who doesn't have power tools is useless. And, um, I mean, she had to show me how to use a drill, and she was like, you are really pathetic. (laughs) Um, so So I had strong role models in my life who told me that I could be an artist, which not everybody gets to have that, you know, especially when you see the class structure in the United States. Um... Uh, so, and they were interested in literature. My parents are from the beat generation.
1: I think you have written uh, very extraordinary from the beatnik generation. I mean, your parents.
2: They. I'm sorry, say it again. They
1: Very extraordinary people oh. from the beatnik generation. Well, you know, I Quote mean... Quote Rachel Kastner.
2: They <laughs> I said that? Yeah. Oh. Hmm. I don't know. No, I mean, they're cool for me. They're you know, I like Mm. my parents a lot. I mean, not all artists have respect for their parents. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to have a kind of, you know, an Oedipal rejection, right? Like um,
1: that was last century. Yeah.
2: Mm. Yeah. Well, just because we've rejected Freud doesn't mean Mm. we've rejected Oedipus. Anyway. But uh, but I happen to like my parents a lot. And they, yeah, they were very unconventional people. You know, they lived in a school bus for a while with us. And, um, and they read literature and also believed in kind of like living it. There was a time in life in the early 60s when people lived a beatnik reality and were interested in poetry. It wasn't like an academic thing or... Uh, like accoutrement to your cultured life as a person who worked my dad barely worked and they uh, yeah we're interested in culture so that I was exposed to things and um, was interested in reading in books early
1: and you're reading yeah. uh, in this book there's a character he's very on Caramazo brothers I mean uh, are there Particular books or authors that uh, are important for you today as a writer?
2: Yeah, well, I like Dosti- I like a lot of different writers, but mm. Dostoevsky was r- really important to me when I was writing this book mm. in particular. Um, and I I read the Brothers Karamazov while I was finishing the Mars Room. Um, I had read it before when I was younger. And it hadn't had the same effect on me at all. I mean, sometimes you have to just be in the right moment with the right book. Um, And um, there's a scene in the Brothers Karamazov called The Talk by the Stone. Do you know this? It's a very famous scene where the character Alyosha, who is kind of a a character of pure goodness, gathers these children who are all in a state of mourning because another child has died, And the death of a child is the saddest thing imaginable. And um, they're all grieving together, but they're in a community of people together. They've eaten pancakes, and they're remembering the special sweet traits of their dead friend. And Alyosha says to the kids, um, remember this moment for your whole lives. Like, into the future, so much will happen to you. There will be decades. it's at a point where you've read this book where terrible things happen to people. They can lose everything, including any shred of moral goodness. And he's telling the children, remember this. And it just completely shattered me when I read it because I felt that what he was, Dostoevsky, was saying was there's a kernel of innocence in every person, no matter what happens to you later. And um, it takes the long journey of that book and all the reticulated work of the book, which is like 500 pages, for me to come to that feeling. So, yeah, I think reading, reading literature can be quite useful.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. How much are you thinking of the reader? You say something about you're together with yourself and your own unconsciousness. I mean, do you have an idea of us when you're writing?
2: I don't at all. No. I mean, um it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I uh I do cuz I don't know who the reader is. Mm. Um and I, I've I found in my personal life when you try to anticipate other people's pleasures and needs, it kind of goes badly. Um but also with a case of art, there is some other, like with a capital O. Mm. But that person maybe has to do with me, um, who I want to please. But it's not a reader. It's not a person reader. I mean, because a reader then would be like the common denominator among readers. And I think once you're doing that, you're lost. Because the book has to take some risk. It has to be absolutely the thing that no one's going to get until you've worked on it so much that it has a unique artistic integrity with no um, precedent. I'm not saying I've done that, but that's what yeah. you mm. aspire to when you're writing, or at least what I do.
1: Do you delete much? I mean, do you throw things away because it's not good enough?
2: Yeah, sometimes. Mm. I love to delete things. You feel love like, to it feels delete like I'm getting that. somewhere. Yeah. 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 Mm. But I mean, that you know when you're in the zone yeah. of writing well, mm. and then you won't have to delete. Mm. And um, the terrible thing about that is that you also know when you're not in the zone.
1: Yeah. How does that feel?
2: (laughs) This is really getting like an analysis thing. Um, No. That's that's different. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. I I don't know. I mean, you have to take it in stride. You Mm. have to go back. You have to put in the hours so that you're there Mm. when it happens.
1: There are some sentences and passages there where I'm impressed and I like it and I love it. I think, ah, now she was really satisfied, I think, (laughs) because there's some beautiful constructed uh, passages there. Mm.
2: Thanks. Yeah. I I mean, hopefully, I I don't know, not too. Should I read one for you?
1: Yeah.
2: Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I am having to pay for this session. I don't know if you guys realize.
1: No, very simple. It was almost comical how weak their big egos were.
2: I didn't even notice that sentence ever before.
1: One more. I mean, I shouldn't overdo this. Um, She looked beautiful, like an arrangement of plastic flowers in a funeral home. I think it was satisfying, weren't you?
2: I don't know. I mean, uh <laughs> sometimes you you just feel like you know somehow what you're doing. Yeah, it's tone. It's the the, the tone tells you what to do in mm. the book.
1: I commented for you just we, before we entered here that you say thanks to Don DeLillo. He's a character in American literature that very many writers find extremely important. I mean. Has he been important for you as a writer?
2: He has been important to me. Mm. Well, um, I uh, sorry. The microphone is tickling me. Um, I thanked him in the Mars room because he gave me the title for the book. Uh, he's also a friend, but I don't like. I only thanked like three, you know, six people, and I don't only have six friends. So, but um, but I, I thanked him particularly for that. He read the book before I had a title, titles are very difficult for me. That's like, some people have a talent for titles. And um, I was gonna call the book, I Am A Destiny. That's the title in German, actually, because it has one less syllable in German, so it sounds cooler. And it's uh, a line from Nietzsche. Um, He has a chapter of his last book, Eke Homo, that's titled, Why I Am A Destiny. Um, And I think the sentiment of that very much fits with Romy and also what happens to her at the end of the book. But it didn't quite work in English, and I really needed a title. So I gave the book to Don in hopes that he would come through for me. And lo and behold, he did. Although at first I wasn't sure he called me and he said, I want to call this book The Mars Room. And The Mars Room is the name of the club where Romy works. And it had never occurred to me it could be the title because... The Mars Room is about San Francisco and the 1990s, and it's only one aspect of the book. She does go back and recount a lot of stuff that happened there and in that city. Um, But the book is something bigger. And then I realized, for him, those two words together don't just mean this club. It's Mars, like the planet Mars, um, which is distant and mysterious, and then room, which is closed and confined and together they kind of rub up against each other so I kind of decided he was right it sounded cool to me um uh, but 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 before I knew him and was friends with him DeLillo for me was definitely uh a very important writer maybe particularly now I would give a different answer but when I before I'd written my first novel um I mean, not that he's not important, but for different books. Before I'd written my first novel, uh, his novels Libra and Underworld were the two books I felt that, which is not to say that there's any influence um, measurable in my work of Don. I wouldn't claim that at all. But his book Libra, which is about Lee Harvey Oswald and the Kennedy assassination um, and kind of America in the 1960s and Underworld, which is a much more massive book about post-war life and the art world um, and the Bronx, Um, the way that he allows for an amplitude in terms of the social, economic, political histories of American life were um, an example for me that I did not find in the work of other novelists.
1: That's why it wasn't name dropping from our side to say Don DeLillo, but... It, exactly what he says, that his literature, I mean, it's really a mirror to contemporary society. And I think it's sociology at, as it best, is fiction. I mean, it's yeah. a crisis author. I mean, he really gets contemporary times before it happens in a way. He's very, very sensitive he, to contemporary life. He
2: yeah. does. Yeah. I don't have that gift. He has, Don yeah. is, has like an um, extrasensory perception. Yeah. He can see where life is going the pattern of the future, and he's done it in several of his books. But he also takes on the larger drift of the historical past and makes it into art, and is somebody whose curiosity about the mechanics of the world Mm -hmm. is totally evident in his literature, which is never like the sort of fusty, you know, musty of historical fiction. It's like, living fiction that's relevant now, but takes account of what happened previous to now. Um, And so in that sense, he was a guide to me when I was writing my first novel, Telex from Cuba, um, which I then, you know, like every kind of young, eager, annoying author sent to him um, and got a letter back. And that's when our friendship began. I mean, now I like other smaller works of his also. But, um, but those two books in particular are important mm. to me.
1: And they both exist in Norwegian. Libra came I out would assume f- so. Yeah, yeah, Libra came out five, six years ago and the before that. They're brilliant. Time is uh, closing. I think we might not do have the possibility to talk about motorcycles now. You but you have a Ducati. No, I sold it. You, you sold it. You have sold your <laughs> motorbike, too. Yeah,
2: I basically... Get, I rode motorcycles um, for several years in my 20s. It was like a lifestyle. Like, that's what I lived. You know, I lived in a warehouse with mechanics and raced and rode and worked on motorcycles in and my 20s. we find it... Wasting life in flame time. In yeah. yeah. She's... Um, but I gave them up because I feel like... You have to love bikes enough to be willing to die for them. Like many of my friends have died riding motorcycles. And I want to live. I love life. So I transf- I cathected from motorcycles, psychoanalytic term, um, from the 20th century, as I'm sure he's uh, Lars. Uh, and... Um, uh, Connected to classic cars, which I've always had also. And they she, kind of provide me with something if it's not the same
1: excitement. And Romy is keen on classic cars. Yes.
2: She has a classic car, which a girl like her would because everybody did in the nineties in San Francisco.
1: Rachel Coshnell, it's great to have you here. It's a beautiful book, it's beautiful literature. Thank you so much.
2: Thank yeah. you. Thank you.